The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Don Gross. Don earned her BA from USC and a combined MD PhD from Tufts University School of Medicine. She completed her residency in internal medicine at Tufts and received fellowship training at Stanford in hematology and bone marrow transplant. Dawn became a hospice physician after her father's death and was subsequently invited to attend on the palliative care team at UCSF. She's recently joined the Palliative Care Committee in San Francisco's Department of Aging, as well as become host for the first-of-its-kind live call-in radio program, Dying to Talk, love that title, compelled by her experiences as a mother, hospice, and palliative care provider and caregiver to her father at the end of his life, Dawn continues to speak and write extensively and is hard at work on her first book. Can't wait for that. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's an honor to be with you. It's an honor for me to have you. And of course, we have some mutual people living in the same same area, um, including um, Dina Joseph, who's, who was on my show very near the beginning when I first started a few years back. Yes. Um, so it's it's really nice to have the, that connection with you. And of course, our subjects intersect quite a bit, too. Quite a bit. And Dina is such a gift to work with. Uh, I mean, just a spectacular human being. So That's a, a real, great way to put it. That's <laughs> a, real a great way to put it. Lovely connection that we share. Yeah. Um, the first thing that draws my attention when, when uh, you know, looking over everything you've done is this switch from uh, hematology, um, you know, bone marrow transplant, kind of the most, what I would consider one of the most intensive treatment um, directions that people yeah. can go in. I work in cancer, so yeah. uh, and and at one point, my wife was considering a bone st- bone uh, marrow transplant. So I learned a lot about it at that time. Anyway, from that to palliative care, and it sounds as if your experience led you that way. Can you talk about that some? Of Fill course. Fill us in a bit. It's interesting in that my draw toward the field of hospice and palliative care began before its formal specialty came into existence. Mm. And so while I was seemingly attracted 
um, perhaps like a moth to a flame, some may say, I prefer magnetically. Um, I didn't have a clear destination in mind because there wasn't uh, an, ev- an obvious path. I seem to be being drawn toward having what I've subsequently learned are goals of care conversations or advanced care planning conversations, which is a very technical way of saying discovering what matters most in people's lives. And what I found as I began practicing in, in the world of bone marrow transplant, as you said, an incredibly intensive, rigorous path for people. You're going to be involved in very technical care for a long time uh, in most cases, that I was compelled to start asking people about what mattered most to them. What were they hoping to achieve by going through this procedure? What were their concerns? And for whatever reason, really enjoyed those conversations, even though I didn't necessarily have, as I said, a role model or a clear destination with them. Mm. And then the formal transition, if you will, didn't occur until after my father became terminally ill. And going through this process of being with him in the last six months of his life, helping to care for him, observing the conversations that he was having with himself, with my mother, his wife, with his health care providers, it really started to beg the question, what have I been doing with people as their physician, and what am I doing to support my father? And he helped me listen even more deeply to the point that when he did ultimately die, I had this moment of pause where I really gave myself permission to reassess what I was here on the planet to do, quite frankly. And it, you know, it spanned the gamut of creating a, a cookie company that I was really going to create <laughs> something entirely different in, in honor of the things that mattered most to him that he cherished, um, to reinventing myself as a physician and was fortunate to really stumble into serendipitously the formation of this brand new specialty and uh, was trained in the work of hospice on the ground with a hospice physician going into people's homes and, and fell in love with it and said, yes, this is in fact what I have been looking to do, what I've been called to do, and just didn't know its name. Well, of course, that uh, very beautiful um, experience and story you've just shared is exactly what this show is about, yeah. that <laughs> these experiences of deep, um, loss and um, and depth in many other ways too. I, I, it's not only loss. Do sort of impassion us for something often, and um, I I love the part where you considered a cookie company because it's sort of <laughs> there's a way in which um, it causes us to perhaps reconsider everything. No question. About, about life and what it means and why we're doing what we're doing and uh, open up all the possibilities? Would that be- Absolutely. And, and I recognized at the time I was and remain in a very privileged position where my family could withstand, shall we say, could tolerate my uh, being untethered. Uh, when my father died, no matter how technically prepared I was, how 
extraordinarily he prepared us as a family. Um, the the ac- actual experience of it was one that left me really feeling lost at sea. And, and I was in a position where I could simply be that for a while. And my husband would ever so gently remind me on occasion, you know, Dawn, you, you could be a physician. You could choose to do that again if you wanted, but he wasn't <laughs> forcing me to. Uh-huh. And, and the cooking uh, came, I, I, I look in hindsight now um, as just a, a moment segue. There's an extraordinary play that was written right at the same time as my family was going through this loss um, called Rabbit Hole, which I sure you and your listeners are familiar with. And when my mother and I first saw its production up in Ashland, Oregon, one of the portrayals of this grieving mother is her just obsessive need to bake, specifically bake. So treats upon treats, lemon bars, cookies, pies, you name it. She would never (laughs) take a bite of them. She would be giving them to anyone who crossed the threshold of her home. And I looked at myself and said, that's exactly what I was doing. I became obsessive in baking. I would never eat any of it. I couldn't stop baking. And in particular, I was baking a cookie that I had never baked before until just before my father died, which was a cookie his mother, my grandmother, used to bake for him every time he came to visit called Mandelbrot, which is a, essentially a Jewish biscotti. Mm. And I started to make all sorts of variations of this um, out of my first experience of baking it for him because I will never, to the day I die, I pray, forget the look on his face when I put this cookie in his mouth, which he hadn't had since his mother had died because no one had baked it. Mm. And it was one bite, but it was a bite of such sublime joy and satisfaction. So then I was literally creating a cookie company around these cookies as an honoring of him and his mother. So, so that's for real. And, and, and it was just as legitimate because it was such an expression of the sorrow and the joy of memory and what's possible and how to celebrate that, quite honestly. You know, what you're saying is so interesting because I've noticed that uh, I sort of have developed, because of my own experience and now doing this for a while, a smell for when people are doing something out of that kind of motivation, Mm -hmm. even when it doesn't seem, you know, I'll be, why am I drawn to this person's work? It doesn't have anything to do with grief, you know, or, uh, but then I'll read their story and, and they'll, um, for some magical reason, include why they do it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's why. That's why I was drawn because it's so um, visible when yeah. people are coming from that kind of place with something. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when you went back to or forward with medicine, <laughs> I yes. guess. Cause yes, forward, <laughs> correct. I like that. Um, to, to a different way of doing that, um, did that eventually have the same kind of passion behind it? How did, oh. how did it switch from cookies to aliens <laughs> care? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there was, a, there was quite a bit of overlap, um, and then I will still bake these cookies and created a very 
uh, involved packaging with a story that goes with it and would give it to families that I was now caring for, um, Mm. particularly at the time um, that their loved one has died. And so for me, there is a real continuity. And while that specific expression has become less intensified in the, in the need to bake. Um, the experience of being present with people and discovering what their wishes are and helping those that love them who are often surrounding them in, in ways that they don't know how to do, they're not familiar with, and are really grappling with. This, this is the legacy that my father gave to me at a very young age and was consistent through the very last moment of his life. Um, And that type of gift of being comfortable in the face of real loss, and not loss only in someone's dying, but being at a loss in life for how to take the next step forward, how to know what to ask for, how to know how to reach out for help or even what kind of help or even how to get out of bed. These are the things that my father had such grace and wisdom around that he seemed to so effortlessly share with me and my family. Hmm. What a a legacy. I think it's a perfect moment if you wouldn't mind sharing the poem, This Is When It Hurts. um, uh, Something you'd like to say about it before you read it? I'm happy to. One of the ways I find when I am experiencing significant emotions, particularly in the realm of grief, is, is I begin to write as a, a mode of self-care and reflection, and poetry is typically where it starts. And so this is one that I wrote um, while I was really in the intense moments of losing my father. This is when it hurts, when the sticker on the surface of a nonstick pan won't come off. When your HMO offers a PPO and with PHI protected by HIPAA and you're lost in translation. When you, who used to tap your toe and roll your eyes at the one person in your life who relished solving these mystifying trials is no more. This is when it hurts. When your mother has lost her way but righted herself just in time to say goodbye It hasn't packed her suitcase for her trip tonight, the one you used to pack for her. See, this is when I gasp for air, when I clutch my throat while the wind is yanked from my alveoli, as I watch the sun blaze and extinguish itself into the rolling clouds, and the stars innocently chide the night sky with iridescent laughter. This is when it hurts. When I taste seared foie gras and daiquiem for the first and only time and for a moment leave my body but return only to choke as I'm still too far to reach to share this succulent joy with you. This is when the absence of you is too intense. Yet I continue to write in search of someone to share this emptied life. And so I retrain my cell, redirect my calls, to share these joys, these woes, this strife with my mother, your wife, and trust that you still hear us through the rustling of the wind. As I look to each nodding leaf, each arching petal, each blade of grass, my grief is silent 
and I begin to see that you are free and here with me. And this pain is merely joy more magnified than man knows how to bear. And this then, this tiny pocket of gems, the engrams in my brain of you in my life, this love, this is when it radiates. That so captures that that myriad of directions in grief. Uh, you know, we, it can take us so many different places, not just one. Oh, definitely. And not in one moment in time. I think one of the things that struck me continues to, and I think was, was a very poignant actually in your most recent program, um, is this notion that grief is something we get through, that there is a place to get beyond. Mm. And my experience has been, if anything, a dramatic no to that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Absolutely not. That this is now part of my life, and it's about integrating it and allowing it to show up and recognizing it in those unexpected moments when it does take your breath away. And you're like, hey, wait, what was that? And you're like, oh, right. I just wrote a letter in handwriting that looks exactly like my father. That's, that's what just took my breath away. I didn't expect that as I'm you know, writing just a check to the dry cleaner or something. But in that moment, I could find myself carried away with grief. And that's not uh, something that requires psychiatric intervention, I don't think. I think that's oh. just... Uh, giving ourselves of this moment of pause to say, my gosh, if I loved someone this much, why would I get beyond it? What does seem to require help for many people in our culture is permission. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the, the, probably the bedrock of the grief work I do is permission. permission. Just someone saying, you know, yes, go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. I, you can experience this. And so are, I, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Permission is so important, and it's unfortunate we feel we need it. It's one of the reasons I love many cultures, many less technologically advanced societies, if you will, have such ritual around loss and grief that helps people and gives permission automatically. You know, mm. we used to wear black armbands. We used to uh, have very specific ways of interacting with people and acknowledging that they are in the midst of severe changes in life and to expect them to continue to walk the way that they used to. You know, if they'd lost an arm or a leg, we, we wouldn't expect that of anyone. But mm. because grief and loss are invisible in many ways now, we don't know. And we get scared on how to figure out how to support people. Absolutely. Let's come back to that after the first break. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I hope you'll write me to let me know what you think of the show, what, what's been particularly meaningful, questions you'd like me to ask my guests, things you'd like to know more about. And you can also join my mailing list there. To find Don Gross, do, go to www.drasyouwish.com. Be back soon.
Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Don Gross, a hospice and palliative care doctor and host of the new radio show, Dying to Talk. And um, we were talking before the break, Don, about um, traditions in other places that are more... um, that have more room for grief, let's put it that way. For instance, I was raised by a minister father, but I have a lot of Jewish friends and I sat Shiva when my wife died because just the idea of being surrounded by the people who loved me that first week without her, I I just, uh, I needed that, you know, I wanted it. And it it made such a difference just to be cared for that way. Um, to be taken care of, literally, you know. Literally, yeah. Uh, you, me, and, me and my kids being fed and being, you know, touched and just all of those things uh, set grief forward in such a, a, a helpful way. And, and interestingly, it also supports the people coming to be of support, that there are guidelines so that people aren't left my God, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to call. I don't know. I don't want to upset anyone. It's actually been thought out. So you, you as someone wanting to be of support, don't have to worry about doing something unintentionally yes. dis- disruptive or, dis- or you know, for sure. Yeah. I I feel we were a bit saved from that because of. Um, how long we were in this community of people, mm-hmm. how acculturated they were to the 
the fact that loss was coming. Yeah. Um, so I can't remember anyone being uh, concerned they might make a mistake with what they said, but that is so common for lots of people. So oh common. my gosh. And, and yeah, I've no. experienced it. I witnessed it with people around me, but I, I certainly experienced it myself of someone saying, again, not ill-intended, but when they would ask a question, how are you doing, like we would just any common day, except in the moments of loss. And as I said, that could really happen at any point in someone's life um, because grief doesn't end. If someone answers authentically and says, actually, not so well, instead of the usual, I'm fine. Mm. And then the person asks, why? Right? And if I, you know, I say, well, I'm just, I'm still having a rough day. And that word still is, is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And someone saying, you mean you're, you're still, you're still missing your father? And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, actually, I still yeah, actually, am. Yes. Yeah. Actually, yes. Yeah. Well, still am. That, that's what I was thinking about before the break. And I hadn't thought about this for a while, but, you know, People ask you what you do for a living. I always say grief. Well, I don't always say grief counselor. If I'm stuck on an airplane, I might uh-huh. not say it, but usually I do. Uh, uh-huh. I welcome those conversations generally. And and people will say, oh, that must make it so much easier when you have a loss. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and I'll say, I don't think so. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, actually, As I said, I, I, I knew what was happening I knew yes. my father was dying. He knew he was dying. There was no secret here. Right. And no matter how prepared we were, technically, emotionally, there's really no way to ever prepare for something so profoundly final. And again, the best of intentions or the most experience I've now lost, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I've fallen in love with and, and getting the honor of being part of their care team as they approach the end of their life and through the, the actual process of their dying. And no, it's not easy. There's nothing suddenly no longer sad about it. What I can say, though, is it's not depressing. And those are two really important distinctions of feeling sad, feeling the emotions and having permission having space, and in particular, having colleagues who understand this process um, as distinct from being depressed. And I think that often can come from being cut off, from not being allowed to express the emotions or not knowing how. Again, coming back to that notion of needing permission. Yeah, well, what I will, will often answer to that, Don, honestly, is to say the only difference is that I know I have to do it and it's yeah. okay with me. Yeah, it is. It's it's uh, you, you, you know yourself permission. So you know. We yeah. Know. But Self-care. that doesn't yeah. but but it doesn't mean I just sort of skip along mm-hmm. and and like you I've had uh you know both my parents have died since she died, you know, yeah. numerous friends, uh clients. Yeah. And um stepping onto that lost path just is essential to me instead of something I'm trying to get out of. <laughs> right, or get through. Again, it, it becomes yeah. incorporated. It becomes part of who I am, part of it sounds like who you are. It's why I do the writing that I do, why I um, do these things we, technically speaking, in palliative care called self-care, um, which is very 
critical to how we are able to sustain ourselves in this work is actually by giving this very specific deliberate permission to experience these losses, to express them, and to incorporate them, not move beyond them, it's actually to incorporate them and learn from them. I was thinking I was, as I was preparing for today um, about the intersection between a, um, the kind of health care systems we have now, mm. um, financially driven by and large, um, not, not by you, the practitioner, but by mm-hmm. the, the entity itself, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, and, and therefore time-pressured, and resource pressured, yeah. typically. You can tell me if I'm wrong about this. No, you're <laughs> true. Yeah. And, and then within that, trying to do what you're talking about as a, as a provider, which is to take the time for conversation, to take the time for your own self-care, to stay emotionally uh, available, which is really hard to do when you're rushing, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I, I have trouble. I, you know, uh, I have trouble with that for sure. How do I make the space when I'm busy for that? And I wondered if you have um, some things to say about how you make that possible in what I know to be a pretty big medical environment that you that you work in, and um, you know, well, that's that's a real creative tension in my mind. It, it is, and for the moment, and um, I hope it, it will last beyond a moment, um, the, the specialty of palliative care, of hospice and palliative medicine, which now does formally exist, is designed and modeled after hospice specifically first as an interdisciplinary team. So by definition, we're working inside of a community. We are never alone, and that community as we were talking about ritual in other cultures, um, creates this automatic expectation and permission for conversation, for sharing of stories. It doesn't have to be an hour long. Sometimes it can be as simple as a hug, and we can circle back to Dina Joseph being one of my actual community members, one of my interdisciplinary team partners when I met UCSF, um, You know, there's some telepathy that can happen there. She's Mm. so attuned that just being in the presence of people who understand the conversations we're engaged with can be enough. You know, being allowed to shed more than a tear in private in our sleeve on the ride home. There's a big difference to being able to turn to a colleague and hold their hand or have a hug and say, that was hard. That was really sad. That was devastating. So that's number one, and it's one of the things I wish for all of medicine to re-engage with. It is not that there's something unique to the conversations that palliative care specialists have. Quite the contrary, this is part of life. Therefore, all providers that engage with living people can have these conversations. And we look forward to the day when learning how to communicate in these realms of the emotional experience, the whole human experience of illness, is taught as fundamentally as learning about diabetes and blood pressure management is throughout all of medical training. Right now, we sort of, for reasons that are amazing in some regards, skipped over it and kind of assumed we just know how to do this. And, and the fact is, again, given what you do professionally, you know we don't know how to do this or we've made it much, much, much harder 
to do what might be an intrinsic expression of human beings to share this, we've, we've gotten in the way of ourselves. So how do we help medicine value the need for this so that physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, social workers, all our ha- allied healthcare professionals, respiratory therapists, medical interpreters who are all engaged in these conversations, who are witnessing it, are not burning out because they have to go behind some closed door to cry. Mm. Or worse, they lose touch with the fact that they're experiencing an emotion. And I can say early in my medical training, I was taught very deliberately to create a separation between myself and my patients, saying, for your own protection, you need to create a wall. Don't cross this line. And I tried that for quite a while. And it wasn't until, they said, during this experience with my father and in fellowship that I realized, you know what, I, I'm just not that kind of a doctor. Ugh. I actually need to get close. I need to feel these emotions. They're not my emotions. It's not that I am experiencing someone else's loss and intruding on that. It's simply being human and bearing witness to loss and that acknowledging this is that. And also maybe having resources that understand, I'm, I'm going to have you read about Ms. Peabody in a minute, mm-hmm. um, because it's also understanding that it's not only sad, uh, that there's just a huge range of emotions that, for me, come when I'm near people that are near the end of their lives. For sure. Or, or even in, challenged by a cancer diagnosis or something that, that there's just a, such a range of highly, deeply emotional experiences that come as a result. Absolutely. I don't want to suggest at all that this is just profound sadness that we dwell in 24-7. Quite the contrary, that for me, the, the permission to experience all emotions, sadness being one of the ones we make most challenging, once we can get in there and we grant that permission, what then arises is actually the fullness of someone's life, what mm. they love, what they cherish, what's most unique and extraordinary. And so what you're left with ultimately is profound love and gratitude. Mm. Would you read about Ms. Peabody right now? Absolutely. So this is an excerpt from a story called The Final Pearl. And it takes place during my final visit to a woman. Her, that's not her actual name. Um, but I'm at the bedside of this woman, a mother, in the presence of her two daughters. Miss Peabody's eyes opened and her face began to glow as she took in the scene around her. At first, she focused back and forth between her daughters on each side of the bed. Her smile broadened, but she said nothing. She then began to focus on my face. A faint squint flashed as she struggled to discern my identity. Then she began to giggle. Her gaze left me and moved to a space past the foot of the bed. No visible person occupied the area. No photo or image hung in its path. But Miss Peabody saw something or someone. And it is then, without moving her eyes, without a sound, she began reaching. The room fell silent. Even the ever-present moan of the oxygen compressor seemed to disappear. Several minutes passed before anyone dared speak. 
none of us could believe what we were witnessing. Is she knitting? I uttered softly, not quite believing my own eyes. One daughter cupped her hand to her mouth and stifled a sob. It is her most favorite thing in the world to do, knit, her other daughter began. Knitting, purling, tabbing, crocheting. She loves all these things. Her mother taught her how. That final statement said with her head facing in the direction of Miss Peabody's gaze. No question, she's happiest when she's knitting, her other daughter concluded between tears. I've never seen anything like this, I whispered, mesmerized with her choreographed arm tugs and pulls and swings in the air. Tears grazed my own cheeks as I spoke, not realizing it was aloud. It's so beautiful. What a gift to know that which makes you most happy. I love that final statement. Isn't it a gift? (laughs) It is. is. In fact, I ran home to my husband that night after seeing this extraordinary event. And um, and he, you know, it was totally out of context. He didn't know what I was coming from. And I just sat down. I said, tell me, tell me what's most important. Do you, do you love biking most or kayaking most? Should we put a paddle in your hand if you're dying? You know, like, he was just like, whoa, what is going on? <laughs> oh, that really, was time, huh? <laughs> but it really was. It was so profound. The, the comfort in this in this stunning way for out of nowhere these daughters to see that their mother was doing in midair what she loves most as she's literally on her deathbed. It's just incredible. You know, it it reminded me of something that happened with my mother. I may have even shared this on the show before, but it's uh, so relevant to this. She my mom was the kind of person who loved to make beauty in her home. Um, she had a career and everything, but I think that was really her love, mm. and especially flowers. Mm. So when she was sick, I would bring her one of those little tiny bouquets frequently. Uh, uh. Um, just every time I'd come, I'd bring her a little bouquet. And so the day she died, I brought her one, and she appreciated that. And she said, but this other one's in the wrong place. And she pointed, <laughs> and there were no flowers there. <laughs> it took me a little while to catch on. And finally, I said, oh, those ones right there? And she said, yeah, those ones. They're just not in the right place. <laughs> and I said, well, Mom, where would you like them to be? And she pointed across the room Mm. and I picked up the imaginary flowers Mm. and I put them where she had said and she said there that's right now Mm. (laughs) Mm. you know people people are still themselves aren't they oh completely. she also had a profound sense of what was right and what was what was not right you know Mm. that was Mm. so her to say and it was so funny at the same time because they weren't even visible to anyone but her (laughs) right but they were to her very much very very much so and she was she just calmed right down when those flowers were in the right place yep i believe we'll we'll go on with that that when we get back from our from our uh, next break wonderful memory to have Uh, so, listeners, you can you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Voice America page, Good Griefs page. And you can find Dawn Gross at 
doctorasyouwish.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Don Gross, and we've been talking about experiences in her life that led to her work as a palliative and hospice doctor, about her radio show, and about how uh, how there can be support to face the end of life. And then during the break, we started talking about how we... Uh, since we've both experienced death, it's easier to have more of those present beautiful moments in the rest of life. Um, how does that show itself in your life these days, Don? You know, I, <laughs> I really see that what I do, uh, what I get to do is, is often how I phrase it. What I get to do as a hospice and palliative care physician is incredibly selfish in that it is a constant way of keeping me present to this preciousness of life. Mm-hmm. Being in the face of death, which we all are at any given moment, we just choose not to see it that way. And when I am then brought in, given permission to engage with people who really are on the threshold without question, there's no way to to look at it otherwise, it forces the conversation. And what I experienced then is this, again, granting of permission to let what matters most, what's most essential, rise to the top. And the things that tend to distract us all day and bog us down and create stress and worry for us, they now have been given wings to fly away you know what, that just doesn't matter anymore because time Mm. is precious. And now I'm just going to give myself permission to do or think about or say or be with. 
exactly what I want and forget what I don't. And as I said, the truth is we can do that all the time. None of us know when we're going to die. Some of us have clearer indications, perhaps. But I look around, uh, particularly where I'm practicing medicine today, um, in a trauma center, listen, none of us know. And the gift we have, potentially, is to stay as present to that as we can. I will put a little asterisk by that and, and give a nod to a phrase from one of my favorite plays, um, Our Town, which begs this question of, is it actually possible for anyone to be present to how beautiful this life is every single moment? And the response to that question this young woman asked is, Probably not. Maybe poets come the closest. Sure. (laughs) Sure. So. Well, but the attempt is beautiful. (laughs) Yes. And being able to revel in it and to sort of suck the marrow out of it when we are in the throes of it and can go, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Here it is. It's right here right now. And I'm here. And thank you. Mm. You know, I was thinking as a... as we were talking about this, um, this is a little bit back to something earlier in our mm-hmm. hour together. Um, you were saying all doctors need to know how to be with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you know, this sense of presence to it all. Mm-hmm. And um, you illuminated something, which is that um, unless it, Unless it's absolutely po- impossible to move schedule, my wife and I never go to a doctor's appointment by ourselves. Mm. Mm. And and I I just realized I've thought of a lot of reasons why that's important <laughs> to me, you know. But I just realized that a big part of it is anything could happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that yeah. we are we all are on that precipice. Uh, yeah. I work a lot with cancer, you know, nearly yeah. everyone walked into a doctor's office um, unprepared for what was going to happen a minute later. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and there's something so immediate about that. Uh, and yet we, I, I'm pretty sure most doctors who are not working with end of life are not thinking in that way. This could be a very important moment. Well, no. I think I think doctors certainly do appreciate when they're giving what is uh, described as bad news in the business, if you will. And oncologists um, are some of the ones most burdened by this because cancer Absolutely. has such a devastating, immediate uh, impact on people, no matter the stage or type of cancer, even when it is truly, completely. Curative. Once you hear that word connected with your name, your life is never the same, ever. And this is, again, where palliative care comes in. It's not just end-of-life care. Palliative care, as distinct from hospice, is about supporting people with these life-altering illnesses. It doesn't have to be life-threatening or life-ending. And so to recognize that when we give this kind of communication, not just about cancer, but, again, that being one of the um, most accessible, I think, for, for, for people to understand. Um, doctors know that they're doing that. At the same time, because of how medicine has currently designed itself, 
doctors don't have permission to do anything with that, right? When they leave that room and they go into the next patient's room, they're bringing that with them. Yes. There was a fantastic article, actually, in one of the medical journals last year that was reflecting on, you know, when, when a pilot has a, a difficult landing, say one that included a crash landing, but everyone lives, but we would call that bad. <laughs> They're taken out of the pilot seat for a significant mm. period of time, not because they did anything wrong. In fact, they did everything right because everyone lived, but they recognize the traumatic impact that has now occurred to send them back in without giving them full support, permission to debrief completely. What are you setting up that next flight for? Yet mm. doctors routinely not only go in, do these things, or worse, actually aggressively care for someone who's actively dying, what we call a code on television, and say that person does not survive, so not a good outcome, not because doctors did anything but by the book. Sometimes people just die. They still simply move on. There's no debrief. They just Mm. go right into the next person. And you think about, my gosh, what is that that we've created? Is that what human beings would naturally choose to do? And is that what we as consumers, in this case patients, is that what we would want if we knew our doctor had just been through this? But that's medicine right now. And until we have the guts, I think, to take a big step back and say, hey, can we redesign this? You know, mm-hmm. there was a, another fantastic article saying, where's the... the the disruptor for medicine, when are we going to come in and just say, wow, we need to rethink? Because how we live and how we die has changed dramatically because of how medicine has advanced. But how we deliver medicine has not, and it's now becoming a problem. Well, and this is a whole other show, but I was thinking about, you know, how hard it is actually to define when it's time to change direction and move towards dying as opposed to treatment uh you know my wife for an example got Mm -hmm. a six-month prognosis Mm -hmm. and um could have said well if i've only got six months why would i treat anything (laughs) right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but she just wasn't that type of person Mm -hmm. and she engaged in a lot of treatment and lived eight and a half years Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have been obvious at the start to make that you know Right. I'm happy for having had those years, but at the same time, it's, it's a real pull in two directions. I think what I hear, though, that's so key is it wasn't that what had her choose, at least what you just spoke, mm-hmm. wasn't that I need to live eight more years. It was, that's not the kind of person she is. Yes. Right? And to me, that's exactly where communication exists in palliative care and ideally throughout all of medicine is it's not about choosing treatments for a particular reason, you know, so that we'll achieve a certain thing. And how do we match that when we ask people, you know, do you want us to pound on your chest? Do you want to be on a breathing machine? You know, these are not the right questions. The real right. questions are how, do you, how does a good life look to you? If you weren't sitting here with me right now or lying in this bed in this hospital, what would you be doing? And then it's our job to match treatments that meet that. When you say, this is a woman who's a fighter and she is the kind of person that, show me the way, point me in the direction, and I'm going for it. You know what? Then that's clear. Absolutely. (laughs) It it was was remarkably clear. Absolutely. 
Yeah. You know, whereas my mom made it ultimately a different, um, she tried some things for a while and then yeah. said, you know what, I don't, I want to go home. I want to read my book. And, you know, she had right. a and very good death in another way. Right. And medical care, again, can support that. Hospice is about completely embracing and supporting that. So it's not that it's either all care or no care. It's different types of care, different care focused care. on things that are uniquely important to the, to the individual person. Yes. And then there's having support for goodbye. I'd love for you to share. We're, we're uh, coming down almost mm. to the end of the show, sadly. Mm-hmm. But I'd love for you to share a stolen kiss. So beautiful. Thank you. So this is an excerpt um, of a story about a husband and wife trying to find a way to say goodbye when breath and words fail. She bends near him and gently says, What, dear? Start what over again? He says with effort, This. Oh, she replies, sitting down still holding his hand. This dying, you mean. He nods again with an appreciative smile as her telepathic powers have saved him more precious breath. I look at the two of them in that moment, the wife so focused and intent on keeping her husband strong, her ever-present clipboard noting the history of all medication adjustments, including the numerous ones I've made this morning alone, never relinquishing the power and hope those pages hold, a tether to keeping his life with her that cord so visibly fraying now. Mr. Zuver's weakened and frail body, lying still in flattened bed, his left eye remains open, his wife explaining that as he is seeing double and has been unable to get himself to the eye doctor for a new prescription of eyeglasses. And well, now her throat closes off before she can finish the sentence of acknowledged futility. He's ready, his wife tells me. She settles down beside me as I continue his medication review with our nurse. He's told me so. He's so tired. He's fought a long, long time. Her grip tightening on the clipboard resting on her lap. Her eyes well up as I place my hand on hers and say, And you? She nods. It's so hard, you know. No, I softly reply. I don't know. I can't imagine, but I can see. She nods silently behind tears. No, of course you don't. What what so touched me about that is how being willing to say what you don't know can be so connecting. Yeah. Um, you you and she were in the same. Uh, bubble together mm. even though you were having such different experiences that really moves me thank you it it as i said is an honor to get to be invited into that and and to be authentic to say you said what i don't know what we don't know in medicine there is an awful lot we don't know mm. and in in the experience of living and dying, there's even more. And it's really a gift to get to express that uh, with people who are just speaking, not being alone. Well, this is, this is a good ending point to be talking about 
the sense of privilege it can be sometimes um, to to be there with people um, at death. I I consider that a very um, sacred thing. It is, and and yeah. to be clear, people are very much alive until they're not. And yes. so for me, getting to be. Uh, with this husband and wife, you have to read the end of the story. That's not actually yeah. where it ends, but it quite and, clearly and let's, emphasizes he's very much alive. <laughs> yeah, let's let's send people off to find that. Don, yeah. I really want to thank you for being here today. I've had such a good time talking with you. Thank you. Likewise. And um, listeners, you can find Don Gross at doctorasyouwish.com. And next week, I'll welcome Johanna Lunn. Johanna's a filmmaker, and we'll be talking about her film, Forgiveness, Stories for Our Time, and also a new film in production, When You Die. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.